Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season seven, episode eight. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. Michaela O'Donnell. More on her later, but we're talking about work and meaning. And so uh, do you have work? Do you want meaning? (laughs) You're going to love this conversation. We're in the midst of season seven, which is sort of casually about how the world is on fire and what do we do? Uh, The Omicron variant and all kinds of other things have maybe changed some of our plans coming into the new year. And so um, really, we're just trying to take this whole season and talk to leaders and thinkers who are being spirit led as they consider what the future of Christian life is. So thank you so much to our sponsors like Compassion Canada, amazing people who are doing justice work around the world for the sake of children through the local church around the world and the Church Co. They are a website building company that is more affordable than you'd expect and they build the website for you. I'm going to tell you more about them. Uh, Check out that later in the episode. But of course, uh, if you want more of all things Word Made Digital, we want you to find us on our YouTube channel. We've got a whole back catalog of podcasts. We've got... um, a bunch of tutorials there. We've got other content coming at you this year, 2022. And we're going to be starting this uh, fun newsletter this year. So if you haven't joined our email list, I want you to do that. You can find that on our website, as always, wordmadedigital.com. But if you join the Digital Church Facebook group that we lead, it will not only get you on our email list, but will also have you connected to people all over the world who are having conversations about digital church, evangelism, discipleship, leadership in the digital age of church. So we would love for you to join us there. Okay, Michaela O'Donnell is the executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary in California. And we're talking to her about entrepreneurship, work, and theology. How do we make our work meaningful? And what does that mean when everybody's working at home? And why does everybody want to be an entrepreneur and do all these side hustles now? And how do we basically as Christians um, bring our faith into our work and our work into our faith um, outside of quote unquote vocational ministry jobs? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michaela. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 7. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Michaela O'Donnell, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast today. I, I'm really glad to be here, Joanna. Thanks for having me. I uh, I hope that the next little bit of our time, uh, I can like we can nerd out a little bit on some um, theology of work, creativity, and all that stuff. But as a means of introduction, we were just before we hit record. You were you were telling me that you come from a similar background to what Word Made Digital does in terms of creative, meaningful work for the world. So maybe as a means of introduction, uh, tell us about yourself and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking. So I, my husband and I both uh, went to seminary and got seminary degrees, master's degrees, and we graduated in uh, 2010 and 2011. And there was a huge recession happening at that time, a huge Mm -hmm. hiring freeze. Basically a theology degree was not a very marketable skill. And so, (laughs) which we found out fast in the hard way, I'll be honest with you, Joanna. And uh, so we found ourselves pretty, pretty quickly being like, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay rent? How's this going to go? And my husband is, he's an artist at the core. He speaks the language of artists. He speaks the language of film. I think that might be his primary language. I've had to learn it just to, you know, enough to be able to talk with him. And um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. That's that's my first language is starting things and putting things into the world. So we mm-hmm. decided to start a business that we called Long Winter Media. And it was a branding, communications, video agency. We had to hone ourselves along the way. Um, but that, that business has been alive for almost a decade now. And it has been very, God has been very, very good to us through that business. Um, eventually I went back and did a PhD and I, we can talk about that too, but yeah, I am an entrepreneur, um, and had to learn the really valuable lesson in the starting of that business that I am much more creative than I had perceived myself to be. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, let's talk about, let's land there for a second in this creativity thing. Um, uh, what was it about that entrepreneurial journey that brought that out in you? Um, or do you think all, are, are, are all entrepreneurs creative because they got to solve problems? Or I'd love to, I'd love to hear more from you about that. Yeah, I would go even further and say all people are creative um, hmm. and that, you know, starting businesses is one expression of that creativity. Um, but so is, you know, I, I tell the story and I, and I will answer your question, but I tell the story of my daughter when she was one years old, she was, she was pushing this little toy shopping cart um, from our living room to our kitchen. And we had this little lip in between and she didn't have the physical strength to get over it. And she kept like muscling it and she kind of get frustrated and I'd go over there and I'd lift it up and then I'd go on about whatever I was doing until eventually the fourth or fifth time I was like, okay, I am not helping this. We're just in a recurring pattern here. She's going to have to do something different. So I I (laughs) knelt down next, (laughs) I knelt down next to her and I was like, you've got this, like you, you can figure out a way forward. You can think of something and she's one. So who knows exactly what was happening. But, uh, I sat there with her until eventually she picked up one of the front wheels and she just put the front wheel over the lip and then she was off and running and her solution was incredibly creative. It matched her capacity. It matched how she could move forward in the world. And that story, I like to tell that story as evidence that, you know, we're built to be creative right from the start. This is Genesis Mm -hmm. one stuff, like right from the start. I was one of the very many people who had decided somewhere along the way that creative people were artists. And that was, that was it. So I was married to this artist. I'm like, he's creative. I'd go into all of our meetings. We'd go and pitch to a client and I would describe Dan, my husband as the creative one, me as the business one until eventually one day after we had met with somebody, he's like, that's not actually true. That's not really what creativity is. And he's like kind of calling me out on it, thankfully not in front of anybody else. And that Joanna started a whole process of me learning to reframe much of how I enter the world as being very creative, probably for me, the starting of things, which comes out in entrepreneurship is the um, most obvious expression of that. Wow. And so then somewhere along the lines, you thought, uh, don't have enough going on with this business and my family growing. I'm going to go do a PhD. Tell us about, um, that because that's led to what you're doing now. Um, what was your focus in as a PhD? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a glutton for punishment when it comes to my to-do list. So that's, I'm an Enneagram 7, so that is a that is a growing edge of mine and will be for my entire life, I'm sure. But there we were running the business, and I had, I had kind of imagined myself doing a PhD at some point. Um, uh, like I said, my, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, but these are big Irish Catholic family back in the Midwest. And there's one other thing that we do a lot and that's that we teach. And so I had thought like, oh, I'm going to teach at some point. So, and probably I'm going to teach people how to be entrepreneurs. Right. Um, and yet the, the business was doing well. And I had learned the hard way that a theology degree wasn't very marketable. So I was like, nah, like I'm good actually. And I had a couple of mentors, which is often the case, right? These people sort of like gently tapping me on the shoulder and they're like, Michaela, we feel like you have, we feel like you have gifts for the church. Can you, would you consider? And at first I was like, no, I would not consider that's not practical. And, but eventually, um, (laughs) I don't know, eventually it kind of, it kind of felt right little by little. Um, and so I went back and I got a PhD in what's called practical theology briefly, uh, people ask me all the time, what's practical theology? What does that mean? Isn't, isn't all theology supposed to be practical or isn't no theology practical? Sort of depends, I guess, on what you, where, where you land on that. Um, practical theologians, so biblical theologians would start with like, what does the Bible say about X, Y, or Z? Systematic theologians would start with, what are the big doctrines of the faith? What do we think mm. about salvation or end times? Practical theologians would start with, what's going on in the world? And how might faith speak into that? So right. that's my discipline. And so to your question, what did I study? The, the thing I was became very interested in was the very thing that had happened to me upon graduating with my master's, which is, oh my goodness, the world of work is changing. And I didn't really feel set up for that. Like, what does vocation look like in a changing world of work? So then I did a bunch of research on that, led to some of the, some of the projects and, and, and the book I just wrote. Um, but that's kind of the, the next stage of the journey, if you will. Right. Well, 
Okay, let's talk about that. Um, the world changing feels like a bit of an understatement in 2021. Uh, everyone listening nope. feels it. Everyone is tired from living through it. Um, there's a grief too of, uh, I think of, uh, we can't go back to how things were pre-pandemic in a lot of areas of life, certainly in the church um, and many other areas. Maybe everyone's working at home now, whatever that may be. Um, so give me some markers. How has the world changed? I would imagine it wasn't just COVID-related issues you're addressing. What are some things that have changed? And then let's talk about work in that context. Yeah, I mean, I think your word grief is really critical. So let's mm. hold that as as like the word we're marching toward as sort of explaining some of these things. Yeah, it's funny. I used to walk in. I speak a lot for my job at the, I work at the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. And I do a lot of speaking as part of that job. And a couple of years ago, I'd go into a room and I would sort of announce, hey, the world of work has changed. And I would get this response from people. They would kind of like, you know, oh, sigh and their shoulders would relax and their body language would tell me that I had just named something that maybe they hadn't named themselves. Now, I don't know that any single person has needed to be um, <laughs> told that the world of work has changed in the last 18 months. Everyone's like, yeah, the sky is blue and have you been living under a rock? So in many ways, COVID has accelerated a lot of changes that were already in motion. Um, changes like uh, working, not not everybody working in the same place. Changes like digital commerce. Changes like people not necessarily working at one company and kind of steadily rise, rising up for their career, but instead trying to piece together a bunch of different things. Not to mention an increasingly and importantly diversified workforce and or the tools of digital communication, which is your lane, and in almost every avenue um, from manufacturing to business to the church, things look really, really different. And mm. okay, now let's come back to your word here, grief. Uh, change is in, in, at the core of change, what we have is loss right? A loss of the way things were. And as human beings, when we experience loss, we like have to grieve. And there's not a bunch of built-in space in our work, much less the rest of our lives for grief, whether it's, hey, we don't want to do it because that feels kind of tough or crappy, or actually our to-do list is very, very long. So we're not going to go there today, whatever, whatever it is, there's not a bunch of space for that. So then we've got all this pent up loss and this worry about what might be. And now we're in a bad way, Joanna, if we don't like let it out and let it become grief. Right. So I think your word grief is really critical right now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of us haven't had time to fully process it. You know, I was speaking with someone and they're like, oh, yeah, and so-and-so nearly died of COVID a few months ago. Ha ha. Anyways, moving on. Like, like it's just in any other reality, this would be like a heavy statement, but not that we all know people who are dying of COVID. But, but the point is that there's so many things we're grappling with. We haven't had a chance to process process, yeah. process, however we say that, if you're Canadian or American, uh, mm. the whole thing we're going through. Um, and, and there's this idea, I think, too, of uh, you talk about in your work, unmet expectations. Um, mm. We've exp This isn't what we expected. Uh, it wasn't what we were promised. I think I'd love for you to talk about the expectation thing, particularly because what it brought up for me was this idea, a critique of our generation, we're similar age of millennials is about entitlement. Millennials are so entitled. And I think entitlement and expectation might be partners sometimes. So, you know, for, for people who were told you can be anything you can be. And, you know, I mean, they joke about the, the, uh, the trophies for people who didn't win anything. I don't, I don't know who actually got those as kids, but there's this idea of we were celebrated and built up to be these amazing people who were going to change the world. And then we didn't get that thing in that, that expectation wasn't met in reality. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that, what you found in the work that you've been doing in this area? Yeah, I think that's very well said, Joanna, and unfortunately, very, very true. Um, I, you know, part of my work that led me to the Dupree Center and to writing this book was sitting with people over and over again that kind of had this version of like, 
is something wrong with me? Like, did, like how, why, why was, why can't I find it? Why can't I, mm. like, I don't quite know what it is or I've been, I've been doing all the things I'm supposed to do, but it doesn't really seem to be working out at the pace that I, I thought it was going to work out. And eventually what I started to piece together is that now this, I won't go too in depth here, but because of the, of the, big, like large inheritance of a theology of vocation that we have going all the way back. I mean, seriously to the early Christian church and then the middle ages and then the reformation and then throwing in the industrial age and the information age. The thing, the world has changed in, in really sweeping ways. And that change has been in motion for a very long time. And at the same time, uh, many of our ideas on what it means, I'll use sort of the word called, what it means to be called to something. Calling is something that uh, people talk about in relation to their work. Now, we, we could talk about whether or not those two should be so aligned or not, but we've gotten all this, this stuff and all these hopes and all this, yeah, I can be anything I, I, I want to be, and I can change the world, and God's got something super special just for me to do hmm. in terms of work. And then it's like, okay, but how many words can you type a minute? Or I've sent out a thousand resumes or I'm, my boss is a total, you know, sloth and toxic <laughs> jerk. Thank you. I was yeah. filtering through some, some other words. You think it, thank you for supplying that one, Joanna. <laughs> and so we get stuck because we're like, it's not, it's not that, but it's, but we don't mm. know what it is. And so. Or like the the classic, I think of, uh, the rom-com or the movies I grew up watching were of people in their twenties who were like lead. I think of like classic of like how to lose a guy in 10 days where the girl is like under the age of 30 and it is like (laughs) in a major editorial role in a mag in a like major publication, like that's not how it goes no, for no. most people. Uh, and I mean, we know that movies aren't real, but they, the media we consume has informed a story we want for our own lives. And so, yeah, it's all these expectations. I'm just affirming. It's all these expectations yeah. that were met because <laughs> they, yeah. uh, they got a whole pile of resumes of other people who want to be the editor of their magazine. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm thinking now about something one of my husband's mentors said to him, when he first took his, he took his first film internship and his mentor said, it's going to take you 10 years to be where you think you should be today. Hmm. And that felt like a punch in the gut to both Dan and me. We're like 10 years. Who wants to do that? And, you know, I have to be honest, Joanna, 10 years later, that guy was just about exactly right. <laughs> and I know, oh, and, and I, can't deci- I can't decide whether that's frustrating or liberating. It was very, very frustrating to my then self. But I will say now as a 37 year old looking out to my next decade, it's a bit more liberating. I'm like, okay, so not all the stuff's going to happen as quickly. And some of it might not happen at all. But what the invitation here is to like settle into the day by day on the wayness and that eventually that stuff stacks up to very meaningful work. But, and and I'll just add this, we don't get to that step by step unless we deal with the grief that's right in front of us. So it's not just, okay, press pause on all the things that aren't going and keep sort of hustling our way forward. Part of the step by step is detangling what's not working, helping to recenter on maybe a, a more whole or full sense of calling to do the grief we need to do and to, to kind of be going step by step. This episode is brought to you by The Church Co. If you don't know The Church Co, you've got to check them out. They're literally building people websites for free. So you sign up and you choose a plan and then they have a team of web designers who build the website at no additional charge. I don't know where else you're going to find that. It's an amazing opportunity. So you might already have a website. Uh, maybe that's for your church, your ministry organization. Maybe you as a leader have a website or you're looking to upgrade your website. You're looking to build a brand new website, but their sites look as good, if not better, as sites that cost thousands of dollars more because they're really trying to serve the church by making it affordable. And they have a ton of unique features where they're thinking of churches. So there's other 
other competitor companies that maybe haven't specifically thought of the needs of your church. So they have things like church online and CHMS integrations. They have digital prayer, small groups, events, sermons, and a ton more stuff that's thinking about what the church needs in a website. But the best part, I think, and why I talk about them all the time, it's the price. They do all this for 29 bucks a month. And right now, for listeners to Word Me Digital, you'll get 20% off if you use the code digital, like Word Me Digital. So the code digital will get you 20% off. There's a link down in the show notes, or you can go to thechurchco.com and use that discount code for 20%. Even the word calling, uh, I would use in quotations because mm-hmm. I think depending on the the church, if people are coming from a church background, depending on the church background people come from, what calling is uh, and how that plays out in your life can look different. Like, you know, if you come from a very charismatic background, you're looking for like some prophetic word from an authority figure from the front who speaks something over you in the congregation. I know a friend who carried a burden of he he was told prophetically he was going to be this business kind of person in a in a pentecostal mm. style church service and carried a burden for like 10 15 20 years of his life that this wasn't coming to him and yeah. you know it messed with him and then so i think even i mean that's maybe a very particular example but this word calling um can feel like such a burden and a guilt trip and like an anxiety ridden word for people who are, what is my calling? And I'm not fulfilling my calling. And what if I got my calling wrong? And, um, so can we, can we go, can you give us some theological pointers here? Or do you have, I mean, we're, you mentioned these things about Protestant reformation. We're talking about Martin Luther industrialization. Um, can you give us, um, a bit of a history lesson or a theology lesson on, um, where some of this has come from, Um, for people who have really no background, they may not even know who Martin Luther is or they feel like they do, but they're not really sure. So can you give us a bit of context for that? How did the church come to be this way? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, in 10 minutes or less. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I'll be happy to give a little uh, brief snippet into 2000 years and then an image. But the first thing I want to say is your friend's not alone. Uh, Like if you have baggage related to the word calling and if, you have the instinct to put it in quotation marks, you're not alone. That's, that's lots of us. Right. And at the same time, the theology of calling is, I think one of the most compelling things. Um, it's one of the most compelling discoveries, at least, and maybe this is cause I like to focus on it, but there's just, there's a lot there and there's a lot of invitation. So, uh, the theology of calling has really evolved over the, the history of the Christian church. When Christians were just getting going right after Jesus to have a calling really meant to be a Christian, to be set out and apart from society. Then, and with Constantine, who is an emperor in Rome, all of a sudden Christianity became sort of the normalized religion. So you had some Christians who were like, wait a minute, it's not so scandalous. We, what, how do we get that set apartness? How do we recover that? This is when you start to get the rise of monasticism, monks, and um, people who are kind of going out into the desert to live their faith in radical ways. And you've got, uh, let's call it professional Christians. This is the start of professional Christians. And that was the Middle Ages. So then you get Martin Mm -hmm. Luther and other people right around, this is 16th century Europe, um, right in the early 1500s. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. It's not only the people who are set apart, who go out and live these lives that have spiritual and meaningful callings from God. Anybody, whether you're a whatever, and and Martin Luther would use the word station. Now I'm putting stations in quotations. Whatever station you find yourself in. Are you you the baker? Are you the, um, you know, candlestick maker? Are you the blacksmith? Are you a parent? That is a way to live out, you know, kind of a particular calling. And Martin Mm. Luther would add that you got to be doing that in loving service for your your neighbor. To the kingdom of God, you owe your faith. To the kingdom of earth, you owe your loving service to neighbor. Okay, totally radical, totally liberating. People are like, wait a minute, I don't have to be a professional Christian to have a calling from God. But here's the thing, Joanna. Somewhere along the way, we started to change the way we worked. We no longer had stationary work. People started moving to towns. They started, um, the you know, machines started doing things people used to, and work started getting much more dynamic, all right? Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. what do you do with a sense of calling when work is more dynamic? 
And that's pretty much um, what we've been wrestling through for the last couple hundred years, especially the last 50 to 75 years in the West with the height of what's now called the information age, okay? People's, people's lives are dynamic and their work is dynamic. So what does it mean to have a calling? Well, and it, it comes with ahead. you, these little digital devices. Uh, all the time. Not only is it dynamic, yep. it's constant. Uh, you know, it, it's with you all the time. It's with you, <laughs> yeah. So, how do, so what does that mean? And the first thing I would say is that, you know, in the Bible, a spoiler alert, Work is not synonymous with calling. Those are actually not the same thing. Paid mm-hmm. work and calling are not the same thing. It's been very or even unpaid for me, work <laughs> or even unpaid work, even exactly anything you do. Um, it's been helpful for me to think about calling kind of like a set of nesting dolls. That's what that's like, and I'll huh. go through each layer pretty briefly. Yeah. So we we usually think about the outermost layer, but we'll get to that fourth. The innermost layer. The core calling that every Christians have is actually just to belong to Jesus. You see this over and over again in scripture. The next sort of layer outside of that is the call to participate in what God's doing, redeeming and restoring the world, right? Through Jesus Christ. Okay. So to belong, participate in redemption. The next call out, the one that might really resonate with the listeners of your show is the Genesis one stuff, the call to create. And then finally, when all those are in set on the outside, you've got calls to all kinds of particulars, people, places, um, roles, yes, sometimes jobs, but that those are then expressions of everything that's nested within, not the sole container for our sense of calling from God. Right. Well, huh, I, this is interesting. I really, uh, that's a helpful analogy. Um, I mean, I immediately jump to, because it's the context that I come from, is then like (laughs) people who work as the professional Christians, and not everyone listening to this podcast is, you know, a vocational ministry workers, lots of not, and and we need Christians in all kinds of work, but uh, the complexity of (laughs) working for the faith thing is difficult. And so what, what we see then, cause all those nesting dolls, they get like smashed into little pieces and mixed up. And it's like all, it's like you took each layer and like tried to like repuzzle it together. Like it's, it becomes like a, a horror, a horrifying <laughs> nesting doll with all these broken pieces <laughs> re-glued back together. Meaning your faith life, your work life, your family life is often in that local church. If, cause your family goes to the church with you where you work and your boss is also a spiritual leader over you in some weird way way. And so they can like care for you with your depression, but also, um, remove, you know, your, your opportunity to advance and work because you're depressed. It's so messed up, uh, all those layers. And then leaving a job becomes incredibly challenging because Mm -hmm. all those things are intertwined. Mm -hmm. All to say, um, what I'm coming towards in this is that we see so many people who, particularly in churches, they leave their church job they also leave their faith or they leave attending and participating in their faith in the expression of the local church. So very classic thing I've seen over and over in my peer group is you leave your church job and you leave the church. Mm. Um, Do you want to speak to that at all? I I don't know if you, I don't know if you've done any work in that area in particular. I know we're talking about work generally, but I wonder if you have anything to say to the, particularly the faith faith, professionals (laughs) or whatever word you'd prefer to use. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, core to all of this is, uh, and you're right that most of my work is with leaders more generally, um, something you might call them people in the pews, but I actually think this is an area of, um, in many ways crossover, uh, right. Is that the, the job of being a faith leader is very, very challenging, um, especially right now. So let me extend just some empathy for that. Um, when, when all of those layers, when you exactly, I think your image is super helpful. When we like take a little bit of a hammer and you're, the role that you're in makes everything feel like, no, this is not nesting dolls. We've put all the pieces into a melting pot and I've just got a big swirl of color now. That is particularly exhausting and challenging. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I like, I feel you like that's, that's hard. <laughs> um, 
and, and what and I, can I be don't wonderful know. and rewarding. Like it can be, be that, but of I guess course. I'm, I'm not trying to be all negative about this, but really we're trying to, I'm trying to address some pain points and yeah, yeah I just, it's so disheartening and, and it's like so predictable to me at yeah. this point that right. people leave a faith job and yeah. also leave their faith unless they go yeah. from one pastoral role to a pastoral role at another right. church, which is, which like also happens. But if they're leaving their pastoral work or their ministry job, it also often means they're leaving their yeah. faith. So like, it's just became like, again, there's just grief. I see, I feel the grief. grief. I see it yeah. in other people. Uh, this well, and like lock expectations not met or whatever else it was. Yeah, and I'm curious if you're hearing the same thing I am, which is just that when that's happening, whether people are completely leaving the faith or they're leaving organized faith, right? They're needing to un they're needing to untangle a lot. Like they're needing to process so much. It's almost like I have this image of people needing to be like caught and and held and um that is it's happening a lot and I think the 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 numbers on um I think the numbers in church are, are supporting exactly what you're saying, which is just really, really difficult. Um, you know, at the core of, of what we ask people, and I don't know how helpful this is to this specific thing, but I'll say it just in case, is we ask people to think about um, their pain points, right? You just use the word pain point. What are, like, what are the greatest pain points? Whether you're like right on the other side of that leaving in the process of figuring out, can you sustain? How might you connect with the church, even if you leave your role? And then we ask people, and we leave them actually through a pretty intensive exercise to try and discover what each of those pain points reveals about something they're longing for. And because hmm. the, the flip side of, of pain points is usually there's a pretty deep longing. And those longings, I think, are the beginning of the paths to God, the beginning of the paths to what you need to find in community and for healing and for grief. And so I do think it's a way though sitting in the grief is really important, finding what it is we long for as we're in some of these really tough transitions is a way to um, not get stuck in ways that ultimately aren't helpful in the grief. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. The idea of like the pain point is telling you something about you, yeah. what you want. But of course, work for many is workaholism. It's the addiction that we most celebrate culturally. Uh, you know, yeah. we don't, not the drugs and the alcohol, not so great. Sex addicts, not so great. But work addicts, like we praise that person. We admire that person who does the long hours, um, you know, who sleeps less than you, you know, I mean, maybe less so yeah. now than in the past, but, but it's celebrated because, um, you know, work becomes God, work becomes your purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. do you want to speak to that at all? Have you done any sort of research into this area of, um, um, work in its wrong place, yeah, uh, in our lives? Yeah, actually, just this morning, Joanna, we were, I was talking with one of the people on my team and we have this one post that's uh, on Instagram that's getting a lot more attention than our normal posts do. And um, we were, it, it's a quote and it's actually a quote from uh, the book. And the quote just starts with, work was never meant to save us. Though work has deep and meaningful implications in the kingdom of God, we can never be reduced to what we do for work. And hmm. I, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is really, really resonating with people. And I think it's indicative of a couple of things. One, there's data about who the, who the most overworked people are like in systems, right? And they're usually um, people who are marginalized by systems, right? You think about the person who has to take on four jobs because they're making minimum wage and they're just trying to make ends meet. And I, would, I wouldn't call that anything close to workaholism. I would call that the system not working for everybody. And then the next, the next most overworked category is often high, like white collar jobs, right? People who are sort of at the top and who, um, maybe could at least in a conceivable situation, not work as much, but they're sort of fueled uh, by that. And, and even the system celebrates them putting in those kind of hours. And we are, we are, a, we are a, um, a people, we are a culture that uh, we're capitalistic culture, and I would, I would, I would say that I am a capitalist. At, you know, okay, then capitalism works. 
but there's a difference between <laughs> capitalism working and yeah. exploiting people in it, right? Yeah. And so I want to just churn it a little bit from, okay, how do we individually back off from workaholism and more towards how do we make choices in our everyday lives that don't exploit the work of others and or do not um, privilege or prioritize what seems like the awesome accomplishments of somebody else on paper. Because usually, and the other thing is, and you know this well, we're usually just getting snippets of somebody else's life. Because I can tell you somebody who probably doesn't celebrate the workaholism, it's that woman or that man's kids, right? It's that woman or man's partner, right? There's there's tolls that are paid for anybody who's overworking in that way. Um, yeah, so let me just stop there. Big shout out to sponsors, friends, and partners of this podcast who are Compassion Canada, amazing people doing amazing work. And, you know, although we're new into a new year, uh, the Gifts of Compassion gift guide is something that you can use all year round. If you've got a birthday this month, if you've got a special event coming up, an anniversary you want to mark, I want you to check out the Gifts of Compassion gift guide. There's something for everybody, especially for people who uh, have everything already or they're kind of hard to buy for or your dad who says he doesn't want anything whenever you ask him what he wants for Christmas or birthday or whatever. This gift of compassion gift kind has things like financial literacy training, mosquito nets, water wells, maybe a carpentry workshop. I love that you can buy goats, chickens, pigs, seed gifts, all that kind of stuff. Whatever uh, whatever kind of connects to the person that you're trying to give a gift to, these gifts are sourced specifically by the local communities to ensure that children and their families can thrive even in really uncertain situations and so it's a gift that gives to a child and their family but also a gift you can give to someone you love so go to compassion.ca slash shop today compassion.ca slash shop i want to talk about the word success or defining success. You've done some research and discussions with people, lots of different kinds of people about success. Can you talk to us about um, some of the things you, how did you do that? Or like, what were those discussions? What did you ask them about? And then also my understanding is you found some common threads or themes across Mm -hmm. the board. Uh, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. So if workaholism is not success, if we're grieving yep. work, if, if uh, you know, if all the things we've already discussed, um, what the heck is success then? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm really glad you went here next. Yeah. I, so first starting in, um, some research I did, and then eventually just through the time I get to spend with people, it has not become uncommon for me to ask four questions. I ask people who have all kinds of jobs and who have done all kinds of things, but who have one thing in common is that, and that is that they are Christians. How have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success and what practices have helped you deal with failure? And the, the things that people have said in response to those four questions are probably some of the coolest work I've done over the last five years. And um, here's a couple of the the patterns or the snippets. One, people who are objectively successful, and I don't mean in the workaholism way, but the, okay, you're, you're putting good stuff in the world. Your team seems to think that you're a helpful leader. Um, wow, that product that you put your time into helps people in their lives. They're much more comfortable talking about failure than they are talking about success. <laughs> and that was astounding to me. They were like, okay, I don't, they actually had a hard time defining success. They're like, because it would usually go something like this. I've got a lot more that I think we can do. And we're just getting going on this story. And let me tell you about three or th- three or four things that didn't go well, what we learned from them, how we adapted and how we're moving on. That was surprising to me. Um, a second thing. Um, and, and so that just like kind of comfort with failure, mm. it was actually part of what it means to succeed and missteps and, and image, right. Lack of image concern. That's all woven in there. Another thing. And I think this is critical to a couple of words that you've used already today is that one of the most common practices for these people who are all doing really interesting things and moving the needle and participating in God's work of redemption is that they all practiced empathy. They're empathizers. Mm. They're like moving toward other, I know, right? They're moving toward other people 
they're able to like look other people in the eye and be like, oh, like I see you, I feel you. And then they're able to take that empathy and alongside others convert it into imagination and ask kind of the what if questions like, okay, what might we do? Or what might God be leading us to? Or what if we did X, Y, or Z? Um, and, and the last thing I'll say here is they didn't just stop at imagination. It wasn't just the what if questions. They were so compelled by, by the empathy that, and the resources they had, which that might've been time. It might've been, you know, a team, it might've been a brand to say, we're going to take whatever next doable risk are right in front of us to see if we can kind of make move toward, you know, solutions in, in light of whatever it is we're hearing. So empathy, imagination, and risk are all very, very central to what it means to honestly do work that matters in this changing world. Um, would you say that money is part of the conversation? I mean, I'm not hearing you mention it, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually trying to ask a question I already know the answer to. I'm, I'm really genuinely curious because I think a lot of us, money is part of our success. It's a measurement, not the only one. Um, but what have you found about money? Like, like people throw around this number, like, uh, I, I think it was whatever the last number was, it's probably a moving target. But like, if you make 70,000 a year up until that point, it increases your happiness. And after that point, it makes no difference in your happiness. In fact, maybe you are less happy. Um, so you haven't mentioned anything about the money side of work, and I'm sure that's quite intentional, but do you have anything to say about it from the conversations you've had with all these people across the spectrum? Yeah, I think that you're hitting on something really important here. I think that we do have a lot of anxiety about money when we don't have it, right? And because money is how we pay for things. And I don't mean yachts and big vacations, but groceries and sending kids to school or vehicles that get us from point A to point B. And when I think actually it's a mark of human dignity that people would have the option to work in a way that pays them enough to take care of these kind of needs. Right. And mm. when we don't have access to that kind of work, that's, that's very, very difficult. I think it's marring to something, you know, theologians would call the Imago Dei, right? The image of God that is imprinted and implanted in each one of us uh, because we are dignified. So you have that end of the spectrum. And I think that for those, for those of us who would find ourselves there, like that's very, very tough. And sometimes that's seasonal, sometimes it's more long-term. Um, and, and there are certainly, again, systems that help with this and systems that, that work against this. Um, and I think that's what, something the church can do. I really do. I think the church can be involved in local um, conversations about dignifying work for community members. I think that's actually really critical work of the church and bolstering of the economy and bolstering of a sense of meaning and purpose. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, we can make a lot of money and wonder about how it correlates to happiness or joy or peace or any of the other fruits of the spirit that may, we might want to find. And I do not think that money is correlated to those with the exception that I do think that enough money for baseline needs is, is sort of just like critical to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, you know, kind of that basic, yeah, those basic things right. we walk around with. Um, and if we find ourselves on kind of that other end of, oh, we, we actually, actually have money, we do, we are encountered with some new questions. How do we, in, how do we invest that in responsible ways? How do we spend that? How do we think about, um, the, you know, the payment of people we work with or how we spread that wealth around who, you know, the wealth gaps and, uh, there's, there's a, there's a lot of data on wealth gaps, particularly in related to gender and race. So there's a whole new set of questions that that unlocks. Um, and so I think the question of money is an important one, um, but not directly, at least not in a one-to-one -one way correlated to a sense of meaning in our work. Right. But what I hear you say is mo money, mo problems. <laughs> I mean, oh man, am I saying that? Maybe sometimes. <laughs> more money, more problems. Sometimes. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, and it's, and I think it's a, from a place of privilege, you're able to say that you or, yeah. or me or, or many of us, you know, there's a, that phrase comes from people who have enough. It's assumed then you have enough for your basics. 
Um, you know, and, and what enough is, is a moving target because it depends where you live. I mean, I live in the most expensive city in my country of Canada. Mm. Um, it's very expensive to live here. So, uh, you need more money in Toronto than you do in, uh, you know, even a small city or a smaller place in Canada. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think where I'd like to get to, um, in this conversation is, maybe just a conversation around fear. So we're talking about Mm. calling, we're talking about what success really means. And of course, a lot of people listening are saying like, I feel like I'm not in my calling, whatever that means. I'd like to explore that more, but uh, there's implications to my my job and my family and who are my parents or whoever I'm disappointing or there's so much wrapped up in this. Um, even just pulling on one little thread, a lot of people feel like they are trying to, they don't want to pull on the thread because it has so many other implications. Um, so to the people who are listening and this is resonating with them, um, what do you, what do you say? Especially those who, uh, are afraid, who are fearful about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. It's easy to be fearful um, about this kind of stuff. Partly, I think we need to name, like, why? Like, why are we fearful? Like, where is that coming from? What is that fear? Like, what could it teach us, right? Because it's coming from somewhere. Is it coming from a sense of self and identity? Is it coming from broken relationships? Is it coming from some of the baseline money things we just talked about, right? So I think identifying where fear is coming from is really critical. And we can't always do that alone. Oftentimes we can't do it alone. I I don't know that I've ever been able to really get at the heart of big fears uh, without other people uh, helping give feedback there. That's number one. And number two, this is, I I just, I cannot stress enough how critical it's been for me to lean into the ordinary pace of God's grace. It's just, there's such an Mm. ordinary pace to it. And I, I talk with people a lot about the Exodus 16 story, the manna. It's like, okay, people are out in the wilderness, presumably afraid. We're trying to go somewhere. God, you took us out of this thing that was bad, but we did have pots full of meat there. And we, at least we had meat. We have nothing. We have no food here in the desert. And what are we supposed to do next? And God gives them manna, um, this little dew-like substance, you know, that comes each morning and the part of that story that's so significant, I think, for the journey of work and vocation is that you cannot gather up more than a day's worth of a time except for on the Sabbath, right? And so it's just, you're just kind of literally putting out the breadcrumbs that are, that are right in front of you and following. And when we reduce these big, scary notions all the way down to looking for literal breadcrumbs, that becomes much more doable, much more focused, and in many ways not as scary, right? And the last thing I'll say is we will. Like the the if if you're thinking about a move or something different or you know you kind of don't like your job, there's a ton of people who don't like their jobs. A ton of people right now who are thinking about making moves. It's you might try some things that don't work along the way. In fact, you will. Like you'll try some things that don't work. <laughs> and and you you could be discouraged about those. And this is where uh, in the in the biggest picture I feel so grateful that we have the story of Jesus's resurrection because, you know, Jesus died and was resurrected. We know that death and pain and loss and failure never have the final word. And therefore resilience, resilience becomes a gift of the resurrection. And so we are grafted into a DNA of resilience. And especially if we're not trying to make giant moves every day, but just looking for manna, like we've, we've got the creativity, we've got the resilience that's in our DNA. And so be encouraged that the day by day-ness is possible, even while the big mounting questions may seem too large. Hmm. There's a question I meant to get to and I didn't. So I'm throwing it in here as a last okay. one. You talk about the entrepreneurial way. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? Who is it for? I mean, I'm someone I suppose I'm, I say, I suppose, cause I'm trying to be more comfortable myself with this idea of being entrepreneurial, um, in what I'm doing. I didn't come from an entrepreneur background. I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out that I'm doing. Um, what is the entrepreneurial way? Who is it for? 
Yeah, you're absolutely an entrepreneur. I can just tell you that. Um, I think entrepreneur is one of those labels. It's like creative. When people people hear the word creative, they opt in or out. Except for the entrepreneur, way more people opt out because they're like, I, I don't start businesses. <laughs> but in this age of, honestly, Joanna, in this age of work, we're all starting projects. We're all starting new jobs. We're all starting businesses. We're all starting side hustles. Like at some point, you're going to start something. And that is why I like to break down the entrepreneurial, which is a little bit different than the word entrepreneur, um, the entrepreneurial way to a couple of very simple things. At the very heart of what it means to be an entrepreneur, it's to notice need and opportunity to be able to take your resources, whatever you've got, again, time, brains, you know, creative vision, and actually add value to the need and opportunity in light of that all in the face of risk. And hmm. right there, that's that's what it means to be human, Joanna. Like, you know, we're just noticing needs and trying to add value all the while there's risk involved. And that is, if you strip down what it means to be an entrepreneur, that's it right there, every day, all day long. And so I want to encourage many more people to see themselves as entrepreneurial because my goodness, imagine a world in which many more people are noticing opportunity, thinking they have resources that can add value and move forward in the face of risk to help others. Uh, okay, I like that so much. And isn't that what the world needs? Isn't that what the church needs as uh, it's bleeding out attendees? Mm. What we need yeah. is spiritual entrepreneurs, faith faithful to Jesus and trying to meet needs in the face of great risk. Um, Michaela, where do we find more of you? Um, the Dupree Center for Leadership, uh, those, this book that you have written, Make Work Matter. Where do you want to send people today? Yeah, thanks for asking. I think Dupree.org, D-E-P-R-E-E.org is the best place to find out about what we're doing at Fuller, find out about Make Work Matter, and find out about me. Thanks so much. Thank you. Michaela, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. It was really great to get to know her and uh, get get kind of in her head around these things and start our friendship. So uh, we have next up on the podcast, guys, John Mark Comer, and we're talking about Live No Lies. So I don't know if John Mark Comer needs much of an introduction to this audience. He's been on the podcast before. I know you're going to love having him back again in your ears for a fresh conversation. Thanks, of course. To our sponsors, Compassion Canada and The Church Co., who are making the podcast possible. I want to see you like, share, rate, subscribe this podcast. I'd also love to see you in the Digital Church Facebook group. Links for it's in the show notes. Or if you go on Facebook, just type in Digital Church and you're going to find us. Come join the conversation. And hey, see you next week with John Mark Comer. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.